We're going to be in Revelation tonight, Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 20, and you follow along as I read the text. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. It doesn't say the son of man. It says a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth, and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word and your people who are here tonight to partake of it. We pray that you would use this passage of scripture tonight to minister to our minds and hearts. We are so grateful that those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ never have to worry about going through this, but it's pretty obvious that you want us to know about it. And certainly you would want people who don't know the Lord to know about this. So I would pray that you would use this as it goes out tonight and also ultimately on the World Wide Web to minister to people, draw them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. One of the main arguments that you will often hear against the existence of God, and also an argument against the Bible being the inspired word of God, is an argument that goes something like this. If God is love, how could a loving God, judge and send people to burn in everlasting fire? How could a loving God pour out his sovereign wrath on people and crush them and destroy them? Now, there are different ways you can answer that question, but one of the ways you can answer that question is by asking another question, well, what's your definition of love? If your definition of love is sentimental, romantic, emotional, often irrational kind of love, that pretty much is the love concept of the world, then you've missed God's love completely. God is love. God is loving. But notice what he says. Carefully notice what he says. When he brings up the subject of love, God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John, where God says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love, read the next verses after it says God is love. But by this the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world. He loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. I read that, and I come to the conclusion the love of God is not some sentimental feeling that overlooks judgment. 
His own son suffered our judgment, took on him God's wrath in order to give us the possibility of being saved. So when someone says, well, how could a God of love send wrath and pour out judgment? The answer is, you don't understand what his love is. Maybe you ought to get to know what God's love is. His love put his son on the cross. But if you reject Jesus Christ, if you reject his son, you will suffer the full brunt of the wrath of God, the God who loves just like that, and that kind of wrath is described in Revelation. Now, people don't like to talk about wrath and judgment. In fact, most people will do everything they can in life to avoid that subject. But the truth of the matter is, it's a biblical theme. It's a sober truth. Frankly, it's a scary truth. Because understand this about judgment. Even for the believer, judgment is going to be according to truth. Truth. Concerning every one of us. It's going to be a serious, serious judgment. I mean, let's face it. We get before the Lord, the masks are off. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for a believer, we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And when you realize we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, that is a scary, intimidating proposition for the best of believers. Because the best of believers are honest and they know themselves. And they realize, I'm going to give an account to Jesus Christ. That's for the believer. If you're not a believer, then the judgment of God takes on a whole new dimension, and it is awful. There is an opening statement in the book of Nahum about what God says about all of this. And he says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. What we learn from this is God is a very patient God. He's slow to wrath. He has power. But when he gets angry and he reaches the point of wrath, he'll eventually become so angry that he will pour out his wrath on every single enemy because the guilty people will not go unpunished. And that is what he intends to do. And that is exactly what's happening at this point in the Great Tribulation. That's all he's going to do, pour out wrath. Now, there's no question that when we come to this section in Revelation, God is in the process of pouring out wrath, but he even turns it up more in this text. His sole goal here will be to kill and destroy. I mean, think about the ramifications of what that last verse 20 says. His whole goal now is to pour out his wrath so that the blood of humans is horse head high for a distance of 200 miles. That's what he's going to do. And we need to carefully observe how verse 14 begins, Then I looked and behold. Then I looked and behold. Two things. First of all, there's a chronology to this. There's a chronology to the tribulation. Things precede other things, and then you get to these things. And that happens all throughout this. You'll notice in verse 14, that I look, verse 16, then, verse 18, then. So what we are going through is a very important chronology. At this point in the tribulation, we're well past the halfway point now. 
when you're in the great tribulation and will not be in the tribulation, but those in it are well past the halfway point when this happens. Secondly, John says, I actually saw this. People like to butcher the book of Revelation. They like to allegorize it and symbolize it, and they like to just play a game with it. I mean, they'll, for example, read, well, I saw the horse's bridle's blood 200 miles. doesn't really mean 200 miles. It just is just saying that that's something that John said I would wrote down. John said, you need to understand this. I saw this stuff. I was there. I literally heard these things. I saw these things, and I wrote down what I saw and heard. And in this part of the scriptures, there are two main heavenly harvests that take place in these verses. Both harvests are focused on wrath judgment. They all have their own nuances, but they are obviously critical to the prophetic plan of God. The first harvest is the heavenly harvest that will take place of the earth, and the second harvest is the heavenly harvest of the vine. Now the first harvest is seen in verses 14 to 16. It's the harvest of the earth. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Just imagine that. Swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, the context of this is, coming out of verse 13, is believers are being killed all over the world. They're dying in the Lord. These are believers who are dying in the latter part of the tribulation period. They made it through, survived the first three and a half years. Then Satan is confined to this earth with his demons. He surfaces the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they're on a vendetta to destroy anything that's connected to God. And what we learn in verse 13 is from this point on, a lot of them are going to die. They will have been those who stood for the testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They refused to take the mark of the beast that was being demanded to be taken, and they were not involved in the immorality that the rest of the world was pursuing. So this is going on, and in that context, we get a glimpse here of this first harvest, and there are three observations we want to make about what John saw here. The first person John sees is someone who looks like the Son of Man. He said, I saw... I looked and behold a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Now, why does it all kick off with this? And we'll talk about who this person is in just a minute, but why does it start off with this? I look now at this point and I see this, because what God is saying is you need to understand something. Everything that is happening now is being authorized right out of heaven, And Jesus Christ is responsible for authorizing all the wrath that's coming right out of heaven. He's in charge of it. He's controlling every minute of this. Now, the title Son of Man is a title that's critical to biblical prophecy. This is the title Daniel used to refer to the divine person who would one day be given by God total authority to rule and reign over all peoples in the world. He will one day be back here on earth. He will have a worldwide kingdom. That was predicted concerning him. Someone calculated that Jesus uses this term son of man to describe himself in the gospel some 84 times. He basically identifies himself as the son of man. And this is a key prophetic moment because we're on the verge of the Lord Jesus Christ coming back to take over the world and things are happening in heaven when we're getting near that event. 
Now, in the chronology of these events, this activity precedes that happening. Christ is nearing the exact or the actual moment, but before that happens, there are going to be a series of judgments that are going to be unleashed before the second coming, the glorious second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are those who believe that this one who's like a son of man is, in fact, Jesus Christ himself, and there are some good Bible students who believe that, but we think, along with some others, that what this turns out to be is a very high-ranking Christ-like angel who appears to be like the Son of Man. He's not actually the Son of Man. And I base that on six reasons. First of all, the adverb like is a comparative Greek adverb. It means this angel had a likeness to the Son of Man, was not necessarily the Son of Man specifically. Secondly, there's no article the before the noun son, which lends itself to the possibility this is not the specific son of man, but it's the character and quality of one who's like him. Thirdly, the words another angel that occur in verse 15, that starts off the verse 15, and another angel seems to describe the same kind of being that existed in verse 14 because we look and he sees this one who's like a son of man, then another angel, it would seem to imply that that one was like him. Fourthly, the angel of verse 15 tells the being of verse 14 what to do. In verse 15, another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice, put in your sickle and reap. Well, there's no place in Scripture where Jesus Christ ever gets an order or takes an order from any angel. He's the one who gives orders. In fact, you may remember that when the Lord Jesus Christ was in the garden and they came up to arrest him, that Peter pulled out his sword and swung it and cut off a guy's ear, and Jesus put the ear back on the guy, and then he told Peter, put your sword away. Don't you understand that I could right now call to my father and have 12 legions of angels at my disposal right now. Now, a legion of angels, a legion was about 6,000. So if you have 12 legions of angels that Christ could command just in a moment, that's 72,000 angels. And that gets pretty interesting when you stop to consider that in the book of Isaiah, one angel killed 185,000 people in one night. So if the Lord said I could have access to 72,000 angels here in a second if I wanted them, when the Lord makes that claim, think of the ramifications of how many people they could kill. I mean, if you take 72,000 and you multiply that times 185,000, you come up with over 13 billion people, way more people that's in the world, almost double the number of people in the world. So I don't think an angel ever orders Jesus Christ to do anything. He's the one in charge of the angels. He's the one who tells them what to do. So by virtue of the fact that in verse 15, this angel tells the being in verse 14, go ahead, put in the sharp sickle now and reap, that would seem to suggest to us, well, this is another angel who's responding to another angel. Fifthly, the context is filled with angelic beings who are very active in this final judgment. Man, you've got an angel who flies in the heavens and he proclaims the eternal gospel and you've got another angel who announces Babylon is fallen. We saw that last time in verse 9. You've got another angel who announces the beast worshipers that they're going to burn forever and ever. And if you take the mark, you're going to burn forever and ever. 
And then we'll see more angels show up in verse 15, 17, 18, and 19. So all of this text is just filled with angelic action. And finally, the golden crown that is in verse 14 that's on his head is a Stephanus victory crown, not a diademata, which is a crown of royalty, which Christ will be wearing when he comes back. So our conclusion is at this point in the tribulation as a prelude, and Satan and his demons are going to have to see this because I think this is going to be on display for the whole world to see. As a prelude to Jesus Christ taking over the world, you have a very high-ranked, special, unique angel who appears to be in son-of-man form who shows up and displays the fact that the wrath of God is being poured out on this earth, and it is closely connected to and authorized by Jesus Christ. And there's not a thing they can do to stop it. And as I mentioned, I think this will be visible to all the people on earth. Satan and his demons are confined here. The Antichrist is confined here. The false prophet's confined here. So they're going to see this as well. Time is up. You know, whenever a key political person is about to appear, they usually put on the stage the forerunners. I mean, or usually if a key dignitary is about to appear, there are those who precede him, who set the stage for his appearance. What we have, I think, here is an entourage of angels that are basically showing up and displaying the fact it's getting very near the moment when Jesus Christ is coming back in all of his glory. So here, you not only have an angel who's preceding Christ coming back, but he manifests some of the characteristics that look like Jesus Christ. And there are four main descriptions we get of him. First of all, he's like the Son of Man. That's what the text says. We learn from John 5, 26 to 27, that God the Father has turned over all life, death, and judgment to God the Son because he's the Son of Man. When this happens, what the Son of Man is going to do is he's going to take full authorization to come and pour out his final judgment. The world is about to experience the final full wrath of God. This is a key prelude moment. They're like getting a glimpse, as it were, of a forerunner, an angelic forerunner who's announcing this is about to happen. The other thing I want to point out here, description number two, he's sitting on a white cloud. Sitting on a white cloud. That is stress. John said, I saw that. He was... One like the Son of Man, and he's sitting on a cloud. Now, to actually sit on a cloud and not plummet to the earth would mean you have to be a heavenly being, and the idea of coming on a cloud or in the cloud is something that's clearly connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was here on earth, he spoke of a moment after the tribulation when those on earth would actually see the Son of Man coming on the clouds or in the clouds. But in this case, I want you to notice He's not coming in the clouds or on the clouds, but he's sitting in the clouds. Now, that's another indication, in my opinion, that this is not actually the Son of Man moment where he comes in all of his glory to take over the world. Because if you back up to Daniel, and I would have you go back to Daniel chapter 7 for just a second, if you would, please. Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, we get a glimpse of when the Son of Man is going to come. And what we learn in Daniel chapter 7, I want to draw your attention to verse 13. I kept looking 
in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, when this moment happens, you'll notice This son of man is not sitting. This son of man is standing and he's going up to, as it were, God the Father and he's taking the finale of the documents necessary for him to come back and take over the world. By virtue of the fact that this one is sitting in the cloud would seem to suggest it's near that moment, but it's not quite that moment. There's still a little bit of tribulation wrath that needs to be poured out. And probably as he is sitting there, And remember when Jesus was here, he said, only the Father knows the specific moment that that's going to happen. He said, it's in his charge. And probably as he's sitting there, he's just waiting for the final word to go take it over. Now the third description, he's wearing a golden crown. So we learn in verse 14, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle. He has on his head a golden crown, and that must be something for... Satan and the demons and also the Antichrist and also the false prophet, the spot, because as they look into the sky and they see this one who's like Christ wearing a crown, they remember, well, what we had on his head the last time was thorns. He had a crown of thorns. But now we're looking up there. This isn't the same type of being that was here before, now this one's wearing a golden crown. And by virtue of the fact he's wearing a golden crown of Stephanas, it's not Diadamata, as I pointed out. It's a crown of victory. I think this angel is making a statement that Jesus Christ is going to have full victory. It's going to be pure victory. It's going to be royal victory over everything and pouring out the wrath of God, which he's going to do at this point as he pours out the wrath of God, is going to be something that is a pure victorious moment. It's a pure moment. When he purges the earth of evil and evil people. The fourth description is he had a sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 14 says, and a sharp sickle in his hand. One commentator said the noun sickle only occurs 12 times in the Bible. Seven of those times are right here in these verses. And the adjective sharp occurs seven times in Revelation. Four of those times are right here in these verses. This sharp sickle that's used at harvest time is going to make a swift, clean cut. It won't take long. It won't take long for this sickle to cut things down. And that's precisely the point. As we move toward the end of the tribulation, it's rapid fire, judgment, and death. I mean, God is literally pouring out his vengeful wrath on this world, and he is firing it at a high rapid speed. Now, the second observation is another angel commands the first to reap in view of the ripe harvest. Verse 15, another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice, To him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, what is interesting to observe in this context is the word ripe used here in verse 15 is different from the word ripe in verse 18. The word ripe that's used here in verse 15 describes something that's dried and withered. And the fresh fruit is gone, it's rotten, it's a bad harvest. The word ripe used in verse 18 describes ripeness in the sense that it's in its prime and in its peak. We could say that the word ripe in verse 18 means it's fresh and lush. And here's the point of using these two different words. 
The whole world has finally reached its most rotten level. It's reached a level of being totally rotten. It's lifeless, it's bad, it's dry, it's withered, it's full of evil. In fact, the first word ripe would indicate there's no good fruit left. So what God is going to do is he's saying, this just is prime time. This is just the peak time for me to pour out my wrath on this world, and it deserves every bit of it. And I think, ladies and gentlemen, as we near the rapture of the church, you're going to see more and more of the world that will become more and more rotten. You're going to probably get to a point, I'm already there, some of the others aren't, where you're not going to watch the news. Because all you're going to see on the news is rotten, lifeless, bad, evil junk. And it's not going to be good. It won't edify you. It won't build you up. It won't enhance your relationship with the Lord. It is just going to get worse and worse. There's no good fruit that you're going to listen to, basically, that comes out on the news every single day. And it's going to get worse in the tribulation. And God is going to let that thing grow until finally it reaches the full brunt of his wrath. Which brings us to the third observation. This judgment is a sickle judgment on the earth. Verse 16, Then he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Man, we're talking about one swing from this angelic being, and the earth with all of its humans in it is just judged. That fast. That fast. That's how quick God can bring something to an end. Jesus specifically spoke of this harvest judgment in connection with him, establishing his kingdom for Israel. This will be a very sharp, swift judgment. This sickle harvest has often been used to promote a grace age witnessing evangelistic outreach, and people oftentimes refer to this and say, well, the harvest is ripe. Well, the fact of the matter is this text is not designed to be a missionary slogan for witnessing and harvesting souls. The truth of the matter is this particular passage of scripture is about the very severe pending judgment and wrath of God that he's about to pour out on the world. It's going to be fast and swift and harsh. This harvest is specifically connected to God's judgment just prior to Israel receiving her kingdom. Our responsibility is to sow seed of the word of God. But I'm telling you, in light of these passages in Revelation, if a person rejects Jesus Christ and they go into this, they are going to experience the wrath of God, the full brunt of it. Which brings us to the second heavenly harvest, the harvest of the vine, verses 17 to 20. Now another angel. Here's angel number five that's shown up in this text. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel. So we've got angel six, the one who has power over fire came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice of him who had the sharp sickle saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because their grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now, the wine press judgment does not just show up in this passage in Revelation, but this particular wine press judgment is referred to in many, many Old Testament passages, such as Isaiah 63, Joel chapter 3. We've listed the references for you. You can look them up. And Joel seems to emphasize the utter terror that will be experienced when this judgment occurs. Now, as I mentioned in my 
preliminary remarks, people do not like this idea of judgment. In fact, I think most people try to dismiss this thought from their brains. They don't ever want to think about, you know, there'll come a moment when I'm going to be judged for who I am, actually am. So there's no point playing a game before God. But what makes this even worse is people not only don't like to hear the concept of judgment, they certainly don't like to hear the concept of other people being crushed and squashed like grapes. But that is exactly what God says I'm going to do, whether you like it or not. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of stepping on grapes, but if you've ever had grapes and you dropped them, and then you step on them, I mean, it's just immediately crushes them and the juice just squirts all over. That's the imagery that God is using as what he's going to do concerning what he's going to do to people. And at this moment in the great tribulation, another angel, angel number six surfaces, according to verse 18, at the wrath time of harvest, and this harvest is specifically designed to kill and crush and execute an incredible number of people on earth, and this angel's job is to destroy humans, kill humans, because their evil has reached such a horrible level, it has filled up the wine press of the wrath of God. It's reached a horrible level. Now, people would typically get into a wine press to trample the grapes back in this culture so that they could get the juice out of the grapes that were being crushed. That's exactly what God's going to do. God is going to actually crush people that is going to be in this wine press because of their evil. He's just going to crush them, but what's going to squirt out is not juice. It'll be blood. Now, we're going to sing at the end of this service tonight, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and I read, Julia Ward wrote that, and I read some things about her. I think she was somewhat skilled in her understanding of some of the scriptures. You know, my eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored, and I actually read an original or a copy of an original manuscript of the lyrics that she wrote which was fascinating because I thought, this woman did know something about the Bible. The only problem is when she wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic, she applied it to the Civil War rather than to this text in Revelation. It fits real nice in this text in Revelation. And in the Civil War, 650,000 people died. In this judgment, where it really tramples the people in the wine press of God, millions are going to die. Millions. And there are three observations we want to make concerning this harvest. First of all, it's coming right out of the temple of heaven. Verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. This is a sacred, sacred moment. A sacred moment at the throne of God. It is more sacred in view of the fact that the Son of Man now is very near the point in time where he's going to come back and take over the world. And it's no coincidence that this judgment comes out of this altar there's no coincidence about that because Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the sins of people. He took their wrath. That's what he did. They didn't want Jesus Christ. These people here who are at this point in the tribulation, they don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. They already heard a final call to respond to Jesus Christ from an angel in the sky. They don't want that. God gives them a final call of grace. They don't want Jesus Christ. And so wrath 
is now not on the altar. It's coming right against them. And they're going to be thrown into the wine press of the full wrath of God. Now the second observation is this judgment occurred outside the city. Verse 20 said, and the wine press was trodden outside the city. Now, there has been some discussion on what city is being discussed here. Some have said, well, this must be talking about Babylon. I don't think so, because we'll get into Babylon in a couple of chapters. I think what we're talking about here is the city of Jerusalem. And this is where this Antichrist is headquartered. This is where this false prophet is. Satan and his demons are certainly headquartered there in Jerusalem. They were responsible for the abomination of desolation in which they set themselves up in the temple, demand to be worshipped as God. And this is probably going to be a massacre that will include Jews and Gentiles that will occur in that Jerusalem area. And it has been calculated that the actual radius around Jerusalem or the actual length of the land that would be known as Palestine today is about 200 miles, 1,600 stadia, and just about the distance of the promised land north to south. And many believe that this is going to be a prelude to the Battle of Armageddon, or Armageddon, as we'll see it. And those who survive this particular terrible judgment will ultimately be those that will be left to go into the millennium. We'll study that another time. And the third observation is this judgment is ferocious. Verse 20, the blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. When it comes to prophecy, no prophecy is of private interpretation. So I want to show you one text from Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah, if you would, chapter 34. Go back to Isaiah chapter 34. And I want you to notice what we read in verse 1, Isaiah 34, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out, their corpses will give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And then if you drop down to verse 6, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. And now notice this clause in verse 6, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now that catches your eye. Because if we're actually seeing what's happening in this text in Revelation, and then Isaiah is making the statement also it will affect the land of Edom, what we would know is, boy, this is going to really hit Arabs hard. He's going to squash them. Squash them like grapes in a wine vat. And the judgment will be so ferocious here that the blood of humans will cover an area of 200 miles and be four to five feet deep. To put this in some perspective for you to grasp tonight, you're looking at a blood level that's four to five feet deep from here to Traverse City. I challenge anybody to show us where there's been anything like that in history. I mean, there's never been anything like that. I mean, the world has never seen anything like this. And it's never going to see anything like this again. This will be a massive slaughter that will take place in this heavenly harvest of the vine. 
And keep in mind that prior to this judgment, God gave the world one last invitation of grace. He actually sent an angel to fly in mid-heaven to go to all of the nations and speak in all of the different languages and grant them an invitation to get right with him through faith in his son. He gave them one final invitation of grace that he told them, you believe in my son, you'll escape my wrath. But if you don't believe in my son, you're going to experience the full brunt of my wrath because it is on the way. People question the love of God. They don't understand the love of God. God loves you. He loves me. It's amazing what he did in his love, but it's not some sentimental, sloppy, worldly, erotic type of shallow love, emotional nonsense. We're talking about a specific love that is very judicious. It's a love that caused his son to die. That's how much he loved us. But you reject his son. You're not under that love of God. You're under the wrath of God. And you will experience fire and brimstone forever and ever. Believe in the Lord and be saved. Let's pray. If you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, don't leave here tonight without doing that. Right where you sit, settle it, settle it. Just admit to God the truth. You're a sinner like all of us and invite the Lord to be your personal Savior. The scriptures teach us whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our Father, this is a scary passage, and it's scary to think in terms of what this world is going to experience, but boy, when we see what's happening in this world, we know that when you do finally do this, it'll deserve every bit of it. I think what's most intimidating for me in this, and perhaps for our people tonight, is the realization that we too, although not being judged for heaven or hell, that's settled at the cross, we too will face a judgment and it's going to be a sober moment. No matter who we are, it's going to be a sober moment. So I pray that as we move toward that moment, we'll be developing more and more into a righteousness that pleases thee. I pray that we would end that way in this earth. We would end with a life that pleases thee, and we're not ashamed before thee. In Jesus' name, amen.